You're listening to Cleveland First Baptist Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Rick Dill. For more information, please visit clevelandfirstbaptistchurch.com. Thank you, Melinda. Good morning. You know, Melinda, one of the verses in that song, uh, she said, when, when I face that last day, then my hope is in him because he will bring me up from the grave. You know, um, we're going to talk about prayer today, but the truth is there is coming a time when prayer will not be necessary. Because in heaven, we won't need to pray. We'll just be face-to-face. And that is our hope. And that is our salvation. So, last week, we're in the midst of a series on, from the sermon, well, from the life of Jesus, his teachings and works. But we've been now for several weeks in the Lord's Prayer, uh, in the Lord's Prayer, in the Sermon on the Mount. Today, we want to talk about the Lord's Prayer. Last week, uh, we talked about the fact that Jesus um, expects of us to do good deeds, and he taught about how you do those. Those deeds are to be done to bring glory to God and not to us. If we give someone uh, something or help them in some way that makes us look good, and that's the point, then we have a reward here, he said. And we said last week that Jesus just assumed, really, that his followers would do good deeds. Similarly, Jesus assumes that his followers will be faithful to pray. But the question was, well, how do I pray? What do I pray about? Um, You know, how does that look? And so Jesus takes, first of all, the bad example that we found in the religious leaders of his day, and that's the passage that Wesley just read. And he really gives us two main points in that little passage about what we're not to do, a pitfalls we might call them in prayer. One is that prayer is not intended to show others how religious you are. That is not the point. If what you're doing uh, is, is calling attention to yourself, then really that's not prayer. That's just a commercial for your popularity. Um, as with good deeds, the Pharisees would use prayer to call attention to themselves. We think of the prayer of the Pharisee and the publican. You know, he prayed out loud so that everybody could hear him. And he said, well, Lord, thank goodness I'm not as bad as Oh, Doug Hill over here, you know. I'm really, in fact, let me just tell you some of the ways I am good. And so that's how he prayed, you know. And, and Jesus says, you know, that's not prayer. If that's what it is, then you, you have your reward. That's already taken care of. So prayer is not intended to show others how religious you are or to impress them in some way. But prayer is also never just vain, repetitive, blah, blah. You know, it isn't about wearing God down until he gives you what you want. It's not about how many times or how long and so forth and so on. Now, I realize that as parents, we sometimes experience that from our children. We just, 
You know, they just keep on keeping on until finally you just say, well, whatever, just do it. But with our Heavenly Father, that isn't the case. Jesus surely is thinking of the pagans who dance around the altar, you know, chanting and uh, the same thing over and over, hours on end, day and night. But that isn't prayer. Prayer is to be a conversation with our Heavenly Father who cares about us, loves us, and desires to do good for his children. In fact, Jesus teaches his disciples to use that most intimate term for father, one a, a small child would have used for his father. Now, that seems so normal to us to say father, you know, when we pray, but that would have been a radical change for the disciples. Then Jesus says to his disciples, well, let me just give you an example how you need to do this, a model that you can go by. This will help you know how to pray and what to pray for. And then we have what we call the Lord's Prayer that probably should not be called the Lord's Prayer at all because Jesus would never have prayed, Father, forgive me of my sin because he was not a sinner. Probably should have been called the Disciples' Prayer perhaps because his intent was to help us understand how we pray. Now, since we've been in Cleveland, I have twice done series on the Lord's Prayer where we took several weeks on these few verses, but uh, today I would like for us just to look at the whole prayer together uh, in a sort of reduced form perhaps, and that should be, you know, for those of you who've been in church all your life and you've heard a dozen sermons or maybe more on the Lord's Prayer, just let it be a, be a reminder that should help you focus your own prayer life. So, Let's just begin, though, by reciting the Lord's Prayer together. Would you do that with me? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So Jesus teaches his disciples to begin by addressing God's, God's concerns. And then uh, the second part of the prayer deals with our human concerns. Now that may remind you just recently we were talking about the Ten Commandments. And if you remember the first four commandments deal with God and our adoration of God and who he is and how we worship him. And then the last six commandments deal more with our interpersonal relationships with our lives. And Jesus sort of follows that model, I think, in his prayer because the first three concerns are God's concerns. They are things that deal with our relationship to him. So the very first one is we are to, to honor God, God's honor. Uh, hallowed be your name. Jesus teaches us to honor the name of God. Um, but, you know, Father was, um, was not a typical name. We just studied in the fall 10 of the Old Testament names that are given to God. And each of them highlights some characteristic of God. His creative power, his presence, 
or his faithfulness. But father was not one of the names that we studied because father is not used to address God in the Old Testament. In fact, in reference to God, it is only used 14 times in the entire Old Testament. And not a single time do we have a record of an Israelite referring to God as his father. That would have been perhaps much too personal or intimate. But Jesus does call God his father, and he teaches us to do the same. Now that points to the intimate kind of relationship that we have with God. He he is not uh, distant and detached. He's not an absentee father figure. He's personal, and he's present with us. He's someone who can know us and someone we can know. How many of you would say of your own fathers, well, I don't really know much about him, really? We were not really close. He never shared much about how he felt or what he thought or who he was. He didn't tell me his hurts and fears. Some of you would not even have known your father. He was not even a part of your life. That would describe way too many of us in this room. I've been with a lot of families as they plan the funeral of a parent. When I ask them to share their memories of that person, it has numerous times happened that they really couldn't tell me anything. Nothing came to mind. But that's not how it is with our Heavenly Father. He has revealed to us who He is. And He desires to know you. And He wants us to be with Him. When you pray, you're speaking to someone who listens and someone who loves. Now, I have to put a parenthesis here. It's important to me. Those of us who are parents, we know that there are many situations in the lives of our children, whether that's heartbreak or sickness or loss of some kind, whatever it might be, when we really can't rectify that. Someone told me one time in a crisis situation with a daughter And this father just completely broke down. And he said, I can't fix it. And he said, that's what fathers do. They fix things. Well, sometimes when we come to God with some critical problem, we desire so terribly that he intervene, that he fix it. But he doesn't always do that. And I don't have a good answer for that. I mean, you know, you can do the theological thing, but that's not truly very satisfying when you're in that situation. But I can tell you this. He is a father who listens and loves. As an earthly father, my love is not measured by whether or not I do what my child asks. I love my children when I can't change a, but sometimes I can't change a hard situation. And sometimes I love them and don't change a situation which I can change. 
God loves us. And that love is measured on the cross. When He does not respond to our prayer in the way we desire, it doesn't mean that He doesn't hear. He does. And it doesn't mean that He doesn't love because He does. But to be intimate with God, to call Him Abba, to call Him Father, is, is not to make God common. And I think sometimes we kind of forget that. God is not some common buddy on the corner. In fact, He is to be made holy and His name is to be held in esteem, special, apart from all others in our lives. God is sovereign. After all, we pray, Father in heaven, you know, that's something special. He is the creator of all. He is over all things. So even though he is close to us in a way that no one else can be, he is still holy to be held in highest esteem above all other people in our lives. God's honor, and then Jesus talks about his kingdom. Thy kingdom come, we pray. Now, we've talked about this before. A kingdom is a country or a territory or an empire that is ruled by what? A king. When we pray, thy kingdom come, we are in essence praying that God's rule would be complete in our lives. That we desire his authority to be exercised in all we do. Now, this week in the news, um, we saw um, an interview with a young man in California on the beach, and he was angry because he was being told he had to wear a mask. <laughs> you can think whatever you want about masks, that's up to you. you know. But uh, his response is not a response that a Christian can make. Because what he said was, look, I'm an American. That means I'm free and I can do whatever I want. A Christian can't say that. Because you have placed your life, if you are truly a believer, under the lordship of Christ. In that moment, when you entered those baptismal waters and said, Jesus is Lord of all, you relinquished all rights to determine anything about your life. It all belongs to him. Well, we are to seek God's rule in our lives. This week, since our kids have been here, I was talking to Andrew, Melinda's husband. I know that's hard to keep straight for since you only see them once a year, once every two years sometimes, but and never all together, so that's wonderful. Um, and we were talking about their visit to Amish country, to Pennsylvania, and Andrew was explaining a little bit about their culture and so forth. You know, the Amish are uh, very uh, orderly, they pay taxes, they pay social security, they draw social security, they obey the laws of the land in which they live. But one thing they don't do, they don't, they don't serve in the military. And if you ask an Amish man about that, uh, he would say something like this, well, we are citizens of the kingdom of God, not the kingdoms of this world. 
We are subjects of this country, which is the country of our residency, wherever that might be. But we are not citizens. Our citizenship is in the kingdom of God. Now, I'm not telling you what you ought to think about serving in the military. That's up to you. But I am telling you this, that every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, we are declaring that our citizenship is in the kingdom of God, the place where God reigns. In this country, this world, we are merely subjects living as foreigners, obligated to obey the laws of the land in which we live. But we are not citizens of this country. This is not our home. It is not the place we invest our lives. We are citizens of God's kingdom, and we pray that he will have authority in our lives. How many of you have been to a funeral of a great old saint, and you've heard people say, Glory to God, Sister Susie has gone home. You know what? That's absolutely right. This is not our home. Not if we belong to Jesus. And thirdly, God's will. God's honor, God's kingdom, and God's will. We pray thy will be done. So your will be done on earth as it is in heaven is, of course, related to the phrase, your kingdom come. You could hardly separate those two. When God's kingdom comes, then uh, he is the ruler. His perfect will will be done, of course. James Montgomery Boyce says this of that phrase, the disciple asked that he and others might live in growing obedience to God's declared desires as they are found in Scripture. So when we pray, thy will be done, it is not like we don't know what God's will is. And, and we got to get that straight, you know. Good, you may not know. You may be asking for God's direction in uh, a job opportunity or something like that. But his will is for your life to glorify God in all the things that you do, in every thought, in every act, in every word. And we know his will because he's revealed it to us in his word. And so we are to seek to apply that in our lives for his will to be done as we know it in his word. Paul said in Romans 12, 2, he said, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know what? God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. I think this is what we're seeking when we pray, thy will be done. We are asking God to change, transform the way we think so that our behavior and customs are patterned after God's will, after his kingdom, after his word, and not after this world in which we live. And it's not an easy thing. We ask that he transform us. Why? Because we can't transform ourselves. He has to do that. So, the first part of the prayer should be about 
the concerns of God and his kingdom, his honor, authority, and will. And secondly, we pray about our human concerns. Jesus instructs us to ask for three things. Our daily necessities, for forgiveness, and for deliverance from temptation and the one who tempts. So let's think about those three things. First of all, our our daily necessities. The word translated daily appears only one time in, in the scripture and until a few decades ago had not been found in any, as I understand it, any ancient writings at all. And it was a word that was sort of debated by the scholars back and forth as to its exact meaning. And then it was discovered on a a small piece of papyrus, and guess what it was? It was a part of a shopping list. You know, now, I don't think of, you know, the people in Jesus' day, you know, they didn't have Walmart, so I'm not exactly sure how that went, but I guess they went and bought eggs and whatever they needed. And on this list, this word daily is about the things she needs today for the family. You know, uh, Jesus instructs us to ask for the necessities of life. To be concerned about what we need today for sustenance. I think that is very difficult for us. Uh, I doubt seriously that anyone in this room has ever truly been concerned about the necessities of today. What we will eat and where we will sleep. The thing is, your cell phone is is not a necessity. Please don't pray about your cell plan, okay? Uh, Even, you know, even our car, all of those luxuries that we have become so accustomed to, they have nothing to do with our daily bread. You know, instead, we are concerned more about whether our 401ks will adequately provide our custom standard of living in retirement now. We may pray about that, but actually, that's not what Jesus says. I think it is right to be wise and prudent in our financial dealings. God teaches us that. But it seems to me that Jesus' instructions here are warning us that our concerns about material things beyond the necessities of life are not to be something that consume our prayer life. It is not uncommon, and you can do it this afternoon if you want to, go to a religious channel and somebody is going to tell you that you just need to ask God whatever you want, you know. If you want a Mercedes, just tell him what color. I always use that as an example because I actually heard that with my very own ears. More in line with Jesus' prayer, at least in the world we live in, would be something like this. Lord, you have already provided for my daily necessities way beyond any real need that I might have. What I really need is for you to show me how I can give some of this to those who are in genuine physical need. That's our desperate need today. Could you pray that? Could you ask God to show you how to give some of your abundance away? If not, it might be a good thing to consider 
your attachment to material wealth. And then Jesus instructs his disciples to pray for forgiveness and the ability to forgive others. He says, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Now the importance of this part of the prayer dare not be missed. It's obvious because it's the only part of the prayer that Jesus expounds on after the prayer. Because in verse 14 and 15, he says, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. That is truly harsh. The word used here for sin is the word debt. Uh, something that you owe. You may have learned the prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, like we said it earlier. Well, one of the ways Scripture describes sin is in terms of debt. Sin has left us owing a debt that we cannot pay. God came and paid the price of our sin. He paid our debt with his own life. In the same way, redemption is the picture of someone who comes and he's freed when a friend or family member or somebody pays that outstanding debt that he had no way to pay. Jesus says that the act of being forgiven a great debt will change your heart. It will result in a heart that desires to forgive the debts others owe us. So what does that mean? Well, it means that in the heart of a true believer, there, there is no room for bitterness and plans for revenge or unresolved grudges. It means that if I've been reconciled to God, that I will seek reconciliation within the broken relationships that fill my life. I will seek forgiveness and I will seek to forgive. So, what is exactly that Jesus expects of us here? Well, we are expected to go to the brother or sister who has sinned against us, who has hurt us deeply. We are expected to go to them and talk with them and seek to find peace and reconciliation in that relationship. That doesn't mean, of course, that we're going to go to the beach with them. Well, we're not going to the beach now anyway. But it does mean that we hold no debt against them, no grudge is held over their heads, and we do not wish them evil. It requires that we care about that person in the same way that God cared about you. When you were his enemy, he came and paid your debt with his life. It means that our desire for reconciliation is so powerful in our hearts that we are willing to pay the price for reconciling a relationship with someone who has hurt us. Now, think about this. That is true when it's that person who did that to me. Jesus says, you go and you forgive. But, you know, think about the fact that it's not always the other person, is it? Sometimes it's me. How much stronger would our desire for reconciliation be? So, the last part, 
Jesus tells us that we need to pray about our need for deliverance from temptation. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So I'm thinking that Jesus probably saved the most important part for last and maybe the most difficult. Um, The statement really reminds us of two important things. One, we are constantly in danger. Temptation faces us every day in one way or another. You know, heaven is going to be amazing. But I think the best part of heaven is going to be that there will be no sin and not even any possibility of sin. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is no longer there. There is no temptation possible. That is going to be a relief. So let's just think a moment about what temptation is. Temptation is the situation in which we must make a choice about what we do, what we say, how we think, how we react. It is a fork in the road, and we have to decide which way to go. Either we choose to live consistent in our faithfulness to God, or we choose to somehow uh, go away from that. Now, I think that we generally think of temptation as something pretty dramatic. You know, if you think of it in terms of a road that has a fork, you know, it can have sort of a different, couple of different ways. You can have a a right angle turn, you know, but generally a fork in the road is not a right angle turn. It is two ways that just at the first, they barely go apart. And I think that is the more common temptation. It is a small thing that leads to great distance from the Father. Um, Some of you will remember uh, a decade or so, or maybe longer than that ago, when an airline took off, a passenger plane took off from Alaska, and they were flying to, uh, I believe it was Tokyo. And um, they veered off course, and... They were shot down by the North Koreans, if I'm not mistaken, and 400 people perished. Unthinkable. And the big question is, why was that airline in you know, North Korean airspace? And what they discovered was that in the calculations uh, of their charted course, there was this tiny, tiny discrepancy, one little bit, half a degree. And you know, if they had just been going to Hawaii, probably not been a problem. But over time, you know, just further and further off course, and somehow nobody noticed. You know, that's really how temptation works in our lives usually. It is a small temptation to depart from the course that is God's will for you. And one after the other, and pretty soon you're way off course. And Jesus warns us that this is a dangerous situation and that we need to seek God's strength 
to resist that temptation. Stay on course. And he also teaches us that there's somebody behind that temptation, the evil one, Satan, the enemy of God. Now, that would seem rather obvious, right? So why did Jesus remind his disciples of that fact? Well, because the word temptation can also be translated test. So to understand whether a trial is a temptation or a test, then you have to know the origin of where that comes from. If it's Satan, then it's not a test, it's a temptation. He is trying to lure you away from God. But God also places things in our lives where we have to decide to be faithful or not. But he's not doing that to lure us away from him, but rather to strengthen our faith. Just as a good and wise father allows his child to face difficulties so that he can learn to make good decisions, so God allows difficulties in our lives, teaching us to follow him. But Satan is placing the carrot in front of our nose in a desire to lure us away from God. Jesus reminds us of how prone we are to make wrong decisions when Satan tempts us. He reminds us to call out for strength and to depend on God to help us resist, and even flee from temptation. So, that's the model prayer. An example that should reflect our daily prayer time. Does it reflect your prayer time? Before Jared comes to sing a, a closing prayer, um, I'd like to ask you just to bow your heads and, and think about some things, if you would, if I may direct your thoughts and your prayers. When was the last time you spent half of your prayer time praying to honor God's name? Hallowed be your name. Would you just do that now? Would you just tell God? how you hold him up. When was the last time you pleaded with God that he would make himself Lord in everything you do, thy kingdom come? Would you just reaffirm his lordship in your life? Would you just tell him again that your desire is that he rules you. How long has it been since you asked God's will to be done in your life and in the world around you? We live in a world that has strayed far from him. Would you just pray that his will be done on earth? When did you ask God to help you seek only the necessities of life instead of our usual obsession with amassing wealth? Would you just ask him to take hold of the material things you have and be Lord over that as well?
Would you ask God to forgive your sin and to help you have a heart that that can forgive anyone who has sinned against you? Perhaps he'll bring someone to mind. Would you just pray that prayer of forgiveness, removing the debt that you've held over their heads? When was the last time you asked God to help you resist temptation? And if there is something that is being held in front of you, some powerful possibility of straying, would you just ask Him for the power to resist? Lord, we just thank You for being God and for being a loving Father. Lord, we know that we are constantly in danger of abandoning You. I pray, Father, that You would help us to be faithful. Lord, teach us to pray and give us a desire to pray. Lord, thank You for being a Father that is, who's approachable and who knows us and loves us in spite of that. Thank You for Your unspeakable gift the freedom we have from the power and the death that sin brings. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank
Yeah. 